Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, I don't often get to say this, but it's it's a relatively quiet week news-wise, so what have you been up to? We can have a chat. We can, where are you now as we speak? I know Whoa. that sounds a bit like a, <laughs> I, that sounds I, a bit like a sex call, doesn't it? Where are you, Kieran? What are you wearing? <laughs> oh, well, those are the days when I used to answer those calls as well. Um... I'm, I'm presently in Liverpool, uh, back teaching, back doing the, the proper job. Um, and, and today we're recording this on the Wednesday night. Um, today is the 43rd anniversary of the release of Down in the Tube Station at Midnight by The Jam. For me, one of the greatest records of all time, but also part of the biggest regret of my life because <gasps> I used to go and see The Jam quite often. Um, and I had tickets for their final ever concert, which was taking place in Brighton, because, of course, it was a big mod town. And mm. uh, my kid sister had never seen them. And I gave my ticket to my kid sister so that she could see them. Um, and I've bitterly regretted it never since, and I've never forgiven her. Well, it was you that did it. You gave it to her, Kieran. She didn't steal it from you, did she? Well, she, she didn't, I mean, I- but she, she she could have let me go. Yeah, I, She sort of cried, and I felt sorry for her, and... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, by all accounts, it was just the greatest gig of all time. Ah, so you did that terrible thing of offering somebody something, assuming they would say no, it's fine, and they went, "Oh, great, thank you." Yes, yeah, I, I think, Kieran, we can we can disagree with people over the rights and wrongs of the Newcastle United deal, but there's no agreeing with anybody who doesn't think that the Jam were probably the best punk band, for want of a better word, of that era. Joy Division, The Smiths, but the jam were right up there. I never actually got to see them for various reasons, mainly because I kept giving my tickets away to various weeping women as well. Uh, But I did have one memorable night out with Paul Weller. Uh, I say memorable. I say memorable. Uh, I'm still piecing it together from bits of information (laughs) given to me by people over the central London and Soho area. Yeah, he came to see one of my gigs. Um, Yeah, and we got chatting, and wow. He's got some. You've, I mean, Kieran, you've got some interesting stories. I'm going to suggest that one or two of Paul Weller's trump one or two of yours. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we get on with the news now that we've lost half our listeners and the BAFTA nomination panel yet again? <laughs> yes, uh, let's. <laughs> um, <laughs> we actually got people. It's got to the stage, Kieran, where you publish your mind map uh, as an indication of what we're talking about on the latest pod, and Derby fans are genuinely outraged. Right, you'd think they'd be quite pleased. Yes, I but do. They're generally discussed seriously. Was that, Where's was Darby? That question? Um, <laughs> but just, uh, they're in luck this week. Um, I don't know whether this is a definition of optimism or it's what you'd expect from as a desperate last throw of the dice. But Derby County have appealed over their points deduction. Yes, um, and this this has come uh, as one of the decisions which has been made by the administrators. Um, under the EFL rules, there is an automatic 12-point penalty for any football club that goes into administration. Um, and if you are going to appeal uh, and it's unsuccessful, you then have to pay the, the costs of the EFL as well. Um, and I went into the administrator's report for our very good friends at Wigan Athletic, and that cost... 
uh, around about four hundred thousand pounds, mainly, of course, in uh, to our to our friends of the the silver tongue variety. Mm. So um, it is a it is a bit of a gamble, but uh, if Derby are successful, you know they will see it as they'll get an extra six to seven million pounds in TV money. They'll get a better commercial deal from their front of shirt sponsor. Um, next season because they're less likely to be in League One. Mm. Um, and also, if you're trying to sell Derby County as a championship club, you're going to be able to sell it for a higher price than it's if it's a League One club because you're only one step away from the Premier League. So I suspect the administrators have done their sums. Um, will they be successful or not? Well, Wigan appealed and were unsuccessful, although the circumstances were slightly different. Um, I've spoken to an insolvency practitioner and said, what would you do under the circumstances? And he said, well, you know, it's a it's a four hundred thousand pound cost for a, a potential seven or eight million pound gain. So, you know, the odds are 20 to one. Is it is it shorter than a 20 to one shot? It probably is, but it's it's not much shorter, in his opinion, because he says, well, you know, there's 71 other EFL clubs that didn't go into administration, so mm. they can't use. Yeah, they've they've not been using COVID as an excuse, and and I think the argument will be put forward by the administrators that it was all due due to COVID and and nothing to do with uh, Mel Morris's fairly cavalier approach to, uh, to to running the club when it comes to the finances. So, so that's uh, that's where we are. Um, I, I spoke to a lawyer as well um, because I believe there is something called force majeure, um, yes. which is uh, external factors beyond the uh, beyond the expectation of man or beast. Um, and uh, he said, "Well, you know, we've had Ebola, we've had uh, SARS elsewhere in the world." Um, you know, the EFL will probably say that they knew and scientists have been saying that at some point in time, there was going to be another global health crisis. And therefore, um, that's going to help the EFL rather than than the Derby County administrators. But it's, it's a punt. It's an expensive punt. But if it comes off, there'll be high fives and trebles all around um, you know, in, in the administrators and also from the point of view of the, the you know, Derby County fans themselves. The force majeure argument is interesting because there aren't many theatre companies uh, or people in my industry who could afford to pay for the force majeure clause in an insurance policy. But those that did are finding that insurance companies are saying this this doesn't count, COVID doesn't count as 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 you say, it's neither an act of God or something that couldn't be foreseen. So it'll be interesting to see how the EFL... But who, who actually hears this appeal, Kieran? Is it an independent committee or is it the EFL themselves? No, no, it, it will be dealt with uh, by an independent body um, and there will normally be three legal experts. There could be one financial expert, but there's normally a panel of three um the the aim is to get this resolved as quickly as possible because it has a huge implications in terms yeah. of the the price that the administrators can negotiate with the potential buyer um so there is a a special sort of sport arbitration service um and that's both cheaper and quicker 
than going to the courts. Um, and that will be the, the course of action that will be undertaken by both parties. Now, I almost hesitate to say this, Kieran, on behalf of Derby fans and indeed of Newcastle United fans, but these rumours have been spreading as tends to happen in these days of social media. And I don't know if there's any truth to them or whether people are putting two and two together and coming up with five. But is there any chance that Mike Ashley will now decide that Derby County is a lovely, cheap football club option that he can add to his portfolio without half the trouble? I mean, he could if he buys Derby County, as people are speculating, it won't cost him much money to get them out of trouble. And... Derby fans will probably love him for the rest of their life, won't they? Well, um, the the administrators have said that there has been no contact with Mike Ashley. But if you take a look at his history of buying distressed assets and distressed brands, you know he is uh, he knows where value is. Um, I, I think the challenge for whoever ends up buying Derby County, and I think people are far more positive than they were perhaps a couple of weeks ago, that there will be a successful resolution here, um, is that it's there's two issues. A, there's the purchase price of buying the club from the administrators. And then B, there's the the costs of operating in the EFL championship where, you know, we, we've said it's a, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a car crash of a division. You've got clubs coming down from the Premier League, you've got clubs coming up from League One, you've got the Hardy Perennials. The average losses are, you know, I think I've worked out 476 grand a week. Um, is is Mike Ashley willing to, uh, to underwrite those losses or is he going to try to operate the club on a similar way to the way that he ran Newcastle, which was to, to try to run it financially on an even keel, If which in which case uh, it's very difficult to get out of that division. If you're heading upwards, uh, it's a lot easier to get out of that division and head towards League One, which isn't good news. But he's, he's just trousered 300 million quid, Kieran, isn't he? Or he's about to. Yes, but he will be looking for value and... Is there value in entering an industry where 80% of the the, uh, the companies in that industry are losing money? Um, you know, he, he's historically taken over brands which have fallen upon hard times. He's sold those brands cheaply with, with, new, with new products and has managed to find a market for them. Uh, is there the equivalent in football? I'm not so sure. I've always loved the phrase hardy perennials. I know it's to do with gardening, but it always sounds to me like something Sid James should get in a carry-on <laughs> film. <laughs> um, this is an interesting one. A group of players, and I think one ex-manager as well, are looking for compensation over what they call data misuse. Yes, um, this is coming via the Global Sports Data and Technology Group Limited, which sounds very grand mm. uh, until you go on to company's house and you find that the company is owned by two blokes, um, one of whom is the former Brighton Hove Albion manager, Russell Salad. Um, and... <laughs> 
He's he's <laughs> and he's, his real Can name's we... Russell Slade, but but one of our fans claims that he once saw him in a kebab shop and he was ordering a kebab and yeah, well it's like, do you want any salad on that, sir? No, please, I want more meat. So he's ever since ever then he's been known as Russell Salad uh, amongst us fans. Um, Kieran, if ever, if ever if any team was going to have a manager called Salad, it would be Brighton. Let's face it. You'll, if there's an Italian manager out there called Quinoa, he'll be next on your list. <laughs> Giuseppe Quinoa. Ah, Brighton will have him. <laughs> so um, this this is all to do with players' personal details and you know the number of passes and tackles they make. Um, the the number of shuttles, the number of interceptions, the number of successful completions. Um, th- there are data analytical companies that a harvest that data, and mm. b they sell it on to other parties. Now, the argument put forward by uh, Russell Slade and and his his colleagues is that this is a breach of GDPR rules, global data. Pr- pr- something recognition um, in in respect of of personal data, which is able to identify you as an individual. Um, And it also includes sort of physical attributes such as the the height of the player. Um, Now, you know, Russell Slade said that some of the the data which is being put out in the public domain or or sold by these organisations is... um, is wrong, which could have a detrimental effect on on uh, clubs that are recruiting. So you might be looking for a centre half who is, you know, the minimum of six foot two, and if the people that have put the get the the data together have said that you're six foot one incorrectly, that could have mm. a negative impact upon mm. your career. Um, so they have they have sent, I think, letters of intent to 17 organizations and this will include the likes of the you know the computer game manufacturers you know fifa is, is a huge game at present yeah um and this is this is i think the lawyer they're in using is a guy called chris farnell um who we have discussed before i think he was involved in part of the uh, rather uncomfortable actions taking place at uh, at charlton uh, and we'll come round to that story a little bit later. We will. Um, and, and yeah, but how far should this go? You know, because you know what happens if 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 in a TV commentary, uh, you know, one one of the commentators says that was an excellent interception by such and such a player, um, and somebody says, well, actually, it wasn't a very good interception, and and we get differences of opinion. Now, I, again, I, I spoke to a a lawyer who who, and I quote, says uh, the lawyer said. Uh, it's quite a stretch to say that this is covered under the uh, GDPR uh, rules, but it's an interesting argument, um, which, in his opinion, was unlikely to succeed, which I think is is a legal phrase for he thinks it's a load of bollocks. Right, OK. It, it, it's a very 21st century problem, Kieran, isn't it? Because we've discussed recently that increasingly clubs are rejecting the traditional scouting approach and going for a very much data-based uh, analysis of, of incoming players. So if they argue that the, the stats incorrectly state a player's height or weight or number of passes, you can understand why they'd be upset. But th- does this include 
the figures that, that the stats at Sky, for example, do use, do, or that the BBC would will trot out for every game. Yes, yes, I think it is because you know, is and, right? and quite often we're seeing in the pre-match analysis, you know, it will be you know, Ngolo Kante has made seventy-four successful interceptions this season, has a pass completion rate of eighty-six percent. Mm. The argument put forward by global sports data and technology is that that actually belongs to the player. Although, again, when I spoke to the lawyer, he said, well, the player's not put together those numbers. So therefore, um, it doesn't belong to the player. It's just an observation by other parties. And ultimately, that's an opinion on the player. So, um, you know, I I think it's, uh, it's a bit of a punt in the dark uh, in terms of the success of it. But, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not accusing Mr. Farnell of being an ambulance chaser with regard mm. to this, of course. Uh, but it, it does seem a bit of a, you know, a long shot. <clears throat> We've discussed this before, Kieran, about making, can you, if you could keep the tone of your voice consistent with what you're not accusing people of, that would be wonderful, especially for producer guy who panics about the legal side of things. I mean, the the Premier League released some monthly stats uh, a f- few days ago, one of which was that Tyrick Mitchell, Palace's young left-back, has had the most tackles, most successful tackles uh, in the Premier League so far this season. So why would Tyrick Mitchell be upset about that knowledge being public? Well, I, I suspect he isn't. You know, the the data can be used on both a positive and a negative. And and remember when uh, Kevin De Bruyne went in to negotiate oh, a new course. contract yes, yes, indeed. with Manchester yeah. City, he used the data to generate for himself a, a pretty significant pay rise on the back of that because it showed just what a huge contribution he makes to Manchester City in terms of not just goals but assists and and start-offs of, of moves which result in goals as well. So um, I guess it's a case of who, who has ownership of that data. Um, is it the player or is it the analytics company? Because presumably Kevin De Bruyne had to pay the analytics company for that data to help him in his in his negotiations. Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? Even though it's him that did all those things, yeah. I'd I'd quite like somebody to do a heat map of this pod occasionally. <laughs> I think it'd be I think it'd be quite consistent week in week out. You would occasionally get up to let Finley out. <laughs> and I'd apart from that, I think people say, yeah, actually, across the season, these guys are really, really solid with their stats. Um, Barnsley, uh, a club we don't talk about a lot on this pod, which is a good sign, mm. but they have closed the West Stand at Oakwell. Yes, this is this is rather weird. I mean, the West Stand is sort of the, the, the main stand uh, at Barnsley and... Uh, again, as, as an away fan, you know it, it's one of those grounds you really enjoy going to. Um, my first trip there was November 1981, where it was a League Cup match, uh, but it was a big. You know, in the in the, in the days when the the League Cup was a big competition, we took the lead after two minutes, and then a Mick McCarthy inspired Barnsley uh, absolutely uh, hammered us four one. Uh, and me and the fellow 44 Brighton fans who were there that evening uh, went home with their tails between our legs. Um, I love Barnsley, but I think Barnsley is one of the best badges in world football. It's hard to explain, but look it up and you'll see. I just love the the solid working chap standing on the side of it. It's great. It's a great badge. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, um, and a, I mean traditionally again, they're the sort of club that are overlooked. The sort of club that are the, they I'm not patronising them there, but are the kind of backbone of the the EFL, the sort of club that every other fan doesn't resent them getting a season in the Premier League. But it's it's always nice to know that they're there. Absolutely, absolutely. So so the West End, uh, it, it's got a capacity of four and a half thousand people. Um, or I think there's around about a thousand season tickets hold, holders there. Um, the director's box is there, so you would assume that it's a decision which has not been taken lightly. But then you sort of dig a little bit further, and it turns out that Barnsley don't own Oakwell. It is ah. jointly owned by the the former family who owned the ground and the local council. Now, the local council have come out and said they have surprise and disappointment with the closure of the West End because they inspected it on the 21st of September. And as far as they were concerned, there was nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Barnsley are saying they've had a structural report which has forced them to close the stand. Um, and digging a bit deeper, the the relatively new owners of Barnsley, um, they're not over happy with the, the position. They're, they're presently paying rent of 150 grand a year, which I don't think is excessive. Uh, for for a football grand, you know, three grand a week, uh, yeah, that's that's probably far less than they're paying uh, the vast majority of their players in the in the championship. Yeah. Um, but there does appear to be a bit of needle between the current owners, the former owners, and the council, um, because in addition, the the north stand at Barnsley, which is where the visiting fans go, and and that's you know that's one of the yeah, it's it's the end behind one of the goals. And depending upon who the opposition are, you know, it's one of those those stands where you might you might get a third of it or, or two thirds of it of all of it. Mm. That that holds five thousand, but they've reduced the capacity there to two thousand, which which seems to be sort of you know cutting off your, your nose to spite your face because I think their their next opponents uh, at Oakwell are Sheffield United, who you right. know you'd okay. think would probably yeah, sell it out. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, of it's course. a big local derby. But I think they they've had issues in trying to get stewards this season. So um it, it's it's uh I think it's all to do with you know fights and disputes at at executive level. Um the new owners have said they are not averse to finding themselves a new place in which to play football. But is that oh, wow. a case of you know are they trying to put pressure on the council and the former owners? Um there's more to admit this than meets the eye. I would hate it. You know, Oakwell's a, it's just a fantastic place to go to for anybody Absolutely. that's, you know, uh, familiar with the history and heritage of, of, of football in this country. Um, I think it would be a real shame if, if they ended up leaving. Um, and let's just hope that they can resolve their differences. Well, as you say, Kieran, it sounds a bit like brinkmanship. Is it also a little bit like the Birmingham City situation where landlord and tenant can't agree who should be paying for upgrades on the ground yes yes I, I, I suspect that there is an element of that um and uh you know presumably the, the new owners have plans and, and they do seem to be quite progressive in, in some ways certainly they they are big uh, big supporters of the money ball style of football and, mm. and they're they're punching above their weight at present so uh we, we'll have to wait and see but as, as we've said on many times on the show the separation of football club from football stadium is is often leading to not good vibes. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. 
What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Now, Kieran, you and I and most of our listeners are aware that when it comes to rivalries, uh, Crystal Palace only really acknowledge one proper rivalry, and that's with uh, what Danny Dyer would describe as your mob. (laughs) Uh, But I'm also aware that uh, Charlton fans have some beef with Crystal Palace, uh, and they think we have a rivalry. It doesn't go much beyond them calling us Palace. And us calling them Clownton, so it's not it's not banter it's not banter on a Dorothy Parker level. Um, uh, but even if I had the biggest biggest rivalry of Charlton fans, I would applaud them for what they've done this week because a bunch of Charlton fans have launched the Charlton Dossier website, and Rochdale fans are going to be interested in this. And that website chronicles every detail of the nine months that ESI owned the club. And as far as I'm concerned, this is fan action brilliantly executed. It it is. And for anybody who wants to get chapter and verse with with regards to what's happened to Charlton uh, over the course of the last couple of years, I, I think it's essential reading. So ESI stands for East Street Investments, and which was a a company which was set up and it bought Charlton um, and, and again, it's a case of you know, be careful what you wish for, because mm. uh, Charlton's previous owner, uh, Roland Duchachelet, he was very unpopular with, wow, uh, with, just, with Charlton yeah. fans, and you can understand their beef. Um, one of the individuals who were part of East Street Investments was a guy called Matt Southall, and you know, there, there is a certainly there is a Netflix show, there is a documentary to be to be uh, produced in relation to what happened at Charlton because it's it's pure soap opera. Mm. There were um, Matt Southall um, lives in Dubai uh, most of the time, but he also has a house in uh, I believe in Worsley in Manchester. Um, and he was then involved in theory with trying to buy a quarter of the shares of Rochdale Football Club 
Um, mm. It's estimated for around about £200,000. He had a Zoom meeting with Rochdale Supporters Trust. I think it's fair to say that meeting on Zoom did not go down particularly well. Um, I think the trust felt that they his, his assurances were... Uh, somewhat non-existent in, in terms of his intentions. It, it sounded like he was just purely trying to buy the shares to make money out of them. Um, if you take a look at what happened with Mr. Southall and Charlton, um, if you if you just Google Matt Southall, Charlton and Range Rover, um, yeah. you'll probably find what you're looking for. Um, and fair play to the, uh, the people behind Charlton Dossier because they went to digging. And then they found that there was a court judgment against uh, Mr. Southall with regards to unpaid bills for his uh-huh. residence in Worsley. Um, unpaid, it looks like some a building contractor had done work there. Um, and uh, the, the, the court was in favour of the building company, £43,000 of work. There was interest on top. There were legal fees on top. So I think they were quite rightly pointing out if... Uh, if he can't go and pay for work done on his house, how is he going to go and spend two hundred grand on shares at at, uh, at Dale, um, mm. and then presumably give them you know some form of of budget in which to compete uh, in League Two because they've they've not had the greatest of starts uh, this particular season. So uh, yeah, it's it's a fascinating read. Um, it, it's further indication to me that. Uh, I think football fans are underestimated. Yeah, there there is a viewpoint that we're 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 just a, a bunch of oiks, and if if uh, if the club goes and signs a new number nine, we can be placated. But the, the the degree of detail that the people behind the Charlton dossier have gone into, the timeline, the professionalism uh, included in the in the website is is something to be applauded. Well, also Charlton, uh, I've got a brilliant history tradition of direct action if you like they started their own political party to get themselves back to the valley yeah uh, and it, and it worked so this is a brilliant resource for rochdale fans basically so i i imagine that charlton fans and rochdale fans are speaking to each other and uh, hopefully they will succeed but as you say kieran you underestimate football fans at your peril because you put us up against a wall and they'll come out fighting not in a you know in in clever ways like this yeah, uh, we're better than you are. Is what I'm saying to people like uh, I'm not even going to say his name. Uh, Cambridge again, another club we very rarely talk about, uh, but their chief executive Ian Mather has said that there should be a tougher regulation of FFP rules. Yes, uh, and uh, Cambridge United are one of the clubs that have signed up to Fair Game, which is yeah. um, a, a lobbying a group, and we had Niall from Fair Game on, on the show uh, a few months ago. Um, Cambridge United have done really well. They they were promoted from League Two to League One, and I, I think Ian Mather, who's I think he's the chief exec or the chairman, he said in his opinion there are clubs gambling with the future of the club, and uh, he he said a few things about Derby uh, about the way that they were being run, which again I'll, I'll let people read for their for their own rights. But I think you can probably guess that he wasn't 
particularly glowing uh, in, in, in his praise. Um, but I think some of the things which he's suggested, that there should be some form of real-time monitoring, i.e. the EFL have access to all of the club's bank accounts so they can see how much money is going out uh, on a regular basis, you know, that's that would be good. He's very much in favour of an ombudsman who can act, come in and act quickly Um and and he's and he and he one of his comments of you know there seem to be some clubs I hate to think who he's thinking of here who who are indulging in clever accounting but it's not that clever if it puts mm. the future and the existence of the club at stake so uh, you know he, he's come out all guns blazing uh, Cambridge United's budget for um, League One is is half a million pounds more than um, than 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 in League Two. Uh, they they think that they can survive on that. It's one of the lowest budgets in League One, and, and we know. Yeah, we've also spoken to our friend Andy Holt about the challenges of being in League One. But um, I, I think the spending in that division this season has been unusually high. Um, Cambridge United, I think their 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 highest scorer last season, um, he ended up going to Wrexham in the National League mm. because Wrexham. Wrexham, who are a National League team, have blown Cambridge United, a League One team, out of the water in terms of wages. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, football. You would think football would learn from prior problems, but uh, it still has an ability to, to spend money that it doesn't have. So one of my favourite ever away games was at Cambridge. Um, I didn't even get in. But it was still one of the best days. It was so when we beat them in the quarterfinal of the FA Cup in 1990, when along with a lot of uh, brash South Londoners who didn't have tickets, we thought, oh, we'll just go down, be fine, we'll get one outside. There'd be a tout. There was no tout. Uh, and we, we still had a brilliant a brilliant day. Um, and also what I love about Cambridge United is that Max Rushton, uh, brilliant <laughs> talk sport host, uh, very funny, very intelligent. Still gets apoplectic with fury every time I mention Jeff Thomas's twenty-five yard screamer that beat them, which <laughs> he reckons was a nine-yard bobbler. But there you go. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> and speaking of FFP, but and and Max Rushton, I think even he would forgive me for saying this is on a slightly higher level. The president of La Liga, Javier Tebas, has accused Paris Saint Germain of getting around FFP rules again. Yes, uh, Javier Tebas, I think, is the the king of whataboutery. Uh, <laughs> it, it, in the sense that you would think his focus would be on Spanish football, but like clockwork, um, you know, practically every month, he has found something to gripe about in mm. respect of clubs from other countries who might just happen to be in have a higher profile or being be more successful than clubs in the Liga. So so this is this is in respect of Paris Saint-Germain and he says they're cheating FFP. He, he, he does not hold back. He, you know I, I I try to be measured in some of my comments uh, because I am mindful mm. of, of producer mm. guys uh, slight mm. twitchiness uh, when <laughs> we say something which is a bit more direct. But he he's come out and he says well you just got to look at their recruitment um, how on earth can they pay the wages of all these players um, and therefore they must be cooking the books in some way? But certainly if, if you take a look at the the, the behaviour of uh, PSG over the course of the summer, they've signed Ramos, they've signed Messi, they've signed Wijnaldum, you know, big players on, on big contracts. 
but they all of those three players were signed on Bosman's. So mm. I've always said that when you when you sign a player, you look at the total cost, which is going to be the amortization of the transfer fee plus the wages. If you're signing players on Bosman's, and, and yes, I know people will say, well, hold on, they've also signed Hakimi for 60 million euro, but if you know that's that's broadly what they have spent. Um, over the course of the summer in terms of fees. And if he signed a five-year contract, that's only 12 million a year in amortization. Um, so so he thinks that uh, that PSG are up to something. And of course, PSG famously uh, said uh, no to uh, Real Madrid's overtures for signing Kylian Mbappe uh, because they want to win the, the Champions League themselves. Um, and they have owners who can afford to allow them to do so. So... Are, does PSG have some very lucrative sponsorship arrangements with uh, with companies based in the Middle East? And of course, their owners are, are based in Qatar. Yes, they they, they do. But yeah, that's that's business. Mm. Mm. It's it, it's almost a slight dampener to excited Newcastle fans. But PSG are the classic example of illustrating that throwing money at a problem doesn't necessarily solve it because you know, whatever they're doing, whatever they're up to, they're still not winning the Champions League, are they? No, no. I mean, um, yeah, they, they, they've become regular uh, participants in, in the final stages, which is far greater achievement than, than their initial uh, years. But uh, yeah, yeah. And the, the, the two Middle Eastern, sorry, the two Middle Eastern backed clubs, Manchester City and PSG have won precisely zero Champions Leagues between them. Mm. So, uh, you know, the likes of Tebas, I think he's being a bit harsh, but I think his nose was put out of joint because um, there is a belief held that if Real Madrid comes for one of your players, you just say, well, you know, it's the greatest club in the world and and off you go with a merry wave. And and PSG, you know, they they stuck to their guns and said, he, he signed for us for another year. We're quite happy to 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 allow Kylian Mbappe to continue to play with us, and there's no evidence of him sulking, as perhaps has been the case with some other high-profile players who didn't get the move they looked uh, they, they were looking for over the course of the summer. And still at the level of uh, stellar football clubs, our penultimate story takes us to Barcelona, who will be playing away from the new Camp for a year while the stadium is redeveloped. Is that going to have a massive effect on match day income? Uh, well, yes, it is because uh, you know, in a in a normal year, uh, Barcelona would look to get around about 130 million from match day or revenues, match day revenues even. Um, and it looks as if uh, they are going to be moving out of uh, the Camp Nou in the summer of 2022. Um, this season, uh, the the local government has just given them final approval to have full capacity for the remainder of their matches, assuming. Um, that uh, you know, COVID is not going to have some form of resurgence. Um, but this this just appears to be very weird because it was only a few weeks ago that people were saying, had Barcelona been a listed company, had it not been owned by its members, that it that it would have gone into administration itself. And now we're talking about a a massive capital expenditure infrastructure spend. Um, so again, further indication that mm. that, bar, that football as an industry, it, it's a bit like watching Men in Black. That somebody, you know, something bad happens. Somebody comes along with a magic pen, and you just forget all the bad news 
and you go again spending money as if it uh, was going out of fashion. Mm. Uh, and our final story, Kieran, brings us to a subject we've spoken about every week for several months now, I think, and that's gambling. Uh, Philippi Hernandez of Sporting Kansas City has been suspended for the remainder of the season for betting on MLS matches. Yes, and uh, I think I think the reason why we the story a it is a financial story. Um, but also, you know, for anybody that saw the program about Paul Merson's battles with his addiction to gambling, wow, yeah, uh, can only be disturbed yeah. that this this is happening far too often in football. And in fact, one of the one of the stats that Paul Merson came out with that you know he's spoken to the PFA and also uh, you know other people. And if you are a professional footballer, you are three times as likely to suffer from gambling addiction than a, a, a member of the general public. Um, but in in respect of Hernandez, he he was found to be guilt to, to be gambling on MLS matches, not matches in which he was playing in. But this is where it turns a little bit uncomfortable. Um, he'd run up huge debts. To and remember, gambling still illegal in many places in the United States. Yeah. Um, so therefore, who who do you gamble with? You you gamble with uh, you know uh, Tio Terry, shall we call him, rather than Uncle Terry? Um, yeah. And and if these people, if you don't pay off your gambling debts, these people can turn nasty. So so he actually approached the MLS himself and confessed to what he'd done. And uh, with a view to getting some form of protection, because he genuinely feared for his personal safety, and he's admitted to an addiction, so he has now been suspended. Um, he is sort of going through some form of rehabilitation. Um, but you know, if, if anybody's familiar with the history of um, American sports, especially baseball, um, you know, there, there was evidence of matches being fixed. Uh, to to satisfy the uh, the desires of certain families going back, uh, mm. who who were making an awful lot of money out of gambling, and this, in my opinion, is further evidence that that regulated gambling is is is, is a necessity because if it go, if it goes to some form of prohibition, which I'm opposed to, um, mm. then the people who get involved can be quite unpleasant. Yeah, I would urge everybody listening to this to watch the Paul Merson uh, documentary. And while you're watching it, you, know, you may be aware of Paul Merson as a footballer. You may be aware of him as the the chap on Sky Sports who occasionally gets foreign names wrong and they all laugh at him. He's one of the nicest people you can meet, Paul Merson. He's a genuinely, genuinely nice fella. And that makes it even harder to watch to watch him talk about his struggles so honestly. And it's, and of course what happens is the, the problem with gambling leads to problems with other things as well. It leads to alcohol, it leads to substance abuse because you're so worried about the effect that the gambling has and it's this, this whole package. So do watch it and do remember that he's a nice guy. And, and also there's so many other people in football that are probably struggling like that. And that's why it's uh, one or two people have said to us recently that we talk about gambling in sport too much. I don't think we can do that. Uh, and that documentary is one of the reasons why I think Kieran. Absolutely. 
So anyway, that's our pod for this week. We'll be back, of course, on Monday with our questions pod. And if you have any questions you'd like to be answered on that show or in about a year's time when we get through the backlog, then email <laughs> us <laughs> email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And if you would like to make a small monthly contribution to our pod, then please go to patreon.com forward slash priceoffootball. Um, and we would welcome any contributions to our always free to air pod, which is coming up to episode what soon, Kieran? Two hundred? Up to yeah. This is this is episode one hundred and ninety-five, I believe, Crikey. according to uh, according to my spreadsheet. Uh, well, if it's on your spreadsheet, Kieran, I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> um, and of course, we we were we are looking to do something special for our two hundredth episode. It may well be that we, re- we revert to our normal plan, which is the long ball of a quiz. But we are looking to do something special. Uh, in the meantime, for tonight, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, uh, thank you, Kevin, uh, and thanks to everybody for uh, allowing us to do 195 shows. It's only because of your <laughs> continued interest, uh, because, uh, you know, myself and Kevin, I think we've said this honestly. Uh, when we first met, we didn't know each other. Um, producer Guy effectively put us together. And we looked at each other and said, "This is uh, this is going to last three weeks, and we're going to run out of material, and we're going to have no 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 listeners, and it's going to be just like one of those one of those holiday romances which you just try to block out from your memory for the rest of your life." Um, but thanks for your continued support. Um, Patreon is one one way of showing your support, but you don't have to do that if you just go on to the the Amazon. Amazon app, uh, and uh, if you can give us a five star review, you can write whatever you want. Uh, it helps on the business side of things. It helps us in the charts, and, and we are trying to uh, get as many diverse guests from different areas of the sport. and And the first thing they do, if, if they don't know who we are, is, is that they go and look and say, "Well, oh, is, is is this show actually worth appearing on?" So it certainly helps us. Other than that, stay safe and look after yourselves. Yeah, those those first few weeks did seem like we were part of some kind of bizarre social experiment, didn't it? <laughs> yes, it like did. producer guy <laughs> that we were being observed from outside the windows of the pub. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you soon. We won't. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the